You find your seats and turn to Exodus 21. Exodus 21. I'm glad we like each other. That's a good thing, right? Exodus chapter 21, if you would turn to verse 12. And if you would stand for the reading of God's word this morning, please. Starting in verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will point for you a place to which you may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel, and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be cleared. Only he shall pay for the losses of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hits her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male, or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is opposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with accordingly to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master thirty shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we once again come to you, Lord, come to your word. God, humbly as we read through all these different laws, Lord, I know as Christians in the New Covenant, I know as modern evangelicals, Lord, we're not accustomed to walking through the law and hearing sermons from the law, Lord. And, and even the writing style and how this is presented is so foreign to us, Lord. So I pray that your spirit would be on us this morning. 
to help us understand exactly what is meant by the words spoken here, Lord. That you would help us understand the meaning that the, the Israelites would have understood when they heard this from Moses as he read it to them, Lord, the book of the covenant. So God, I pray that you're with us today, that we are able to find principles from this law, even though the civil law is not binding today, that we find principles that apply to us in our lives. Be with us this morning, in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. We are continuing to walk through uh, what theologians call, if you were here last week, you've heard me talk about this, theologians call the book of the covenant, and that's Exodus chapter 21 through 23. This portion of scripture is mostly civil laws, God giving laws to Israel, civil laws, and how to govern itself. If you missed the sermon last week, I would encourage you um, to find it online and listening to it, because it, it's an introduction to the, the book of the covenant and really Old Testament civil law, which is, is something that, again, most of us aren't familiar with as uh, modern-day evangelical Christians. And, and I think it would be helpful to, to, to hear some principles and of interpretation that I talked about last week. I'm just going to assume that most of you, I know most of you did, but um, that you heard that sermon and are kind of following along as we continue through the civil law. We also spent a lot of time talking about Hebrew slavery. And I think it's extremely important that we as Christians understand what Scripture says about slavery and what it doesn't say about slavery. So if you have a chance to listen to that sermon last week, I think it would be um, important. Our next text this morning, we're going to see really what I read, three types of laws. Three types of laws that are under the civil law, but three categories of crimes. The first category are capital crimes. In other words, crimes deserving the death penalty. The second category of crimes are crimes related to personal injury, and lastly, crimes of neglect. And so let's just walk through verse by verse this passage this morning, and hopefully we we get a better understanding of what's going on in, in this chapter The first set of laws are capital crimes. Again, crimes deserving the death penalty. If you would, look at verse 12. It says this very simply. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies. What's what's implied here is murder. And let me just define murder. Murder is the intentional killing of an innocent human being. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. And this is very straightforward. It's the death penalty for murder in Israel. God has commanded this. But look at verse 13. It says this, But if he did not lie and wait for him, meaning this wasn't on purpose, he wasn't lying there waiting for him, attacking him when he wasn't looking. It was an accidental killing, in other words. But if he did not lie in and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hands, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. In other words, if someone unintentionally kills a man, it's not the death penalty for that. There's a place that, that this man can flee and find safety there until an investigation by the elders can take place in Israel to find out exactly what happened and why this person died. Now, this foreshadows the city of refuge in Numbers 3. If you're not familiar with that, that's okay. Because the context here, it seems like the place that the person was to flee is the altar of God. And you'll see that in a second why it seems that way. Verse 14 says this, But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning or, in other words, by planning or by craftiness, in other words, intentionally kills a man, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. In other words, again, it's the death penalty for intentionally killing a man 
in Israel. This is what God is commanding. And really, this is the application of Genesis 9, verse 6. Right after the flood, God says this to Noah, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now, verses 12 through 14, I went through that pretty quickly because it's straightforward, but I hope you saw a pattern there. And if you didn't, it's a simple pattern. Verse 12 is murder. Verse 13 is manslaughter. Then verse 14 is murder again. Did you, did you see that? Murder, manslaughter, murder. Murder, death penalty. Manslaughter, no death penalty. Murder, death penalty. There's a pattern here, and this pattern is called a chiasm. Now, it's very foreign to us, and, and most of you haven't heard of a chiasm. We've talked about them before here at Country Oaks, but, but it's a very common way of writing in the Old Testament. Again, it's foreign to us. We don't use this very often. Chiasms were used for a couple of reasons. One, to really help get an understanding, and, and this is why I'm pointing out these, these patterns this morning. I don't always point them out, but every now and then it really helps you understand the passage, and that's the case this morning. There's a bunch of patterns this morning that will help you understand the passage better, and I'll point them out as we go through them. So it helps you understand the, the, the passage better, but it also helps the Israelites just memorize Scripture. There's like a rhythm that you'll see in the passage this morning. It goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. There's a rhythm that helps you memorize scripture. Right? This one's a real simple one. Murder, manslaughter, murder. It goes A, B, A. A, B, A. There's a rhythm there. And we're going to see that again in the next three vers- verses. It's another chiasm. It's, it's an A, B, A chiasm. It's A, crime against parents, verse 15. B, crime against slaves, verse 16. A, crime against parents, verse 17. Right? A, B, A. So you'll see, just look at verse 15. It says this. Whoever strikes his father or or mother shall be put to death. Now, obviously, this is related to the fifth commandment, the commandment that God just spoke from fire from the mountain, from his own voice, which is this, honor your father and your mother. Verse 15 is related to that. It says, whoever strikes, this is the opposite of honoring, right? Whoever strikes his father or his mother. Now, this is important. That word strikes. It's not just like slapping or hitting. I think we read that, and that's what we think. If someone punches their parents, it's death penalty right off the bat. Well, we got to remember the context here. And again, this is where the pattern and the context comes into, into play. What does verse 12 use? It uses the same word. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies. In fact, the Hebrew word means something more like beat down or struck down or attack. In other words, verse 15 is talking about a violent attack against one's mother or father. If a son intentionally, violently attacks his parents, he shall be put to death. This was considered a crime against both the family and society. Now, why would a son ever attack his parents? Well, obviously, he's probably talking about an adult child here, someone that could attack his parents, someone that's probably looking to get his inheritance early. Different, different day, different age, and, and how things worked. Anyone to do this was to, to be put to death, even if it didn't end up in murder. It was such a violent crime. It's such an ugly crime. Even if it doesn't end up in murder, just the intent to try to kill a parent was the death penalty. Now skip down to verse 17. Remember the chiasm. A, B, A. We're going to look at the bottom A. Because 15 and 17, again, go together. Verse 17 says this, Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Now, there's people that struggle with this verse because at first sight, it seems like it's pretty extreme, right? 
If you just curse your parents, you are to be put to death. Well, remember the chiasm. Again, it helps us interpret this passage. Verse 17 is connected to verse 15. Verse 15 is a violent attack. These are connected, right? They're parallel to each other. It's not just talking about being disrespectful one time to your parents. The, the evil that's talked about here is equivalent to the evil in verse 15. So let's just examine this verse a little bit and see if we can get a deeper meaning here. The word curses is important. Right? It means literally to take lightly. Right? In Hebrew, that word that's translated curses means to take lightly or uh, to take as insignificant. It's the exact opposite of the word honor. Honor in Hebrew literally means weighty. That's what it means. It just means weighty. Literally. A child was to consider the role of his parents as weighty. It was a weighty role. Parenthood is weighty. His father and mother are to hold weight in his life. This word curses means insignificant. So what's being described in verse 17 is not just a single act of disobedience, a single act of disrespect to one's parents. Instead, it's a total rejection of the fifth commandment. And more specifically, and I, and I think this is very important to understand, it's a person with such utter contempt towards his parents that he refuses to take care of them in their old age. Now, why would this be a big deal? Remember, this is a, something from last week's sermon, something that's carrying over. No centralized government. Meaning, no one to take care of the elderly. There was no retirement plan, no Social Security, no Medicare, no police, no firemen, no paramedics. No one to protect the elderly. This was the responsibility of adult children to take care of their mother and father. Therefore, the person that neglected this responsibility in one real sense was sentencing their parents to death. Again, verse 17 seems extreme at first when you read it, but when you put it in the pattern of the chiasm, when you understand the culture... It makes more sense. This, this commandment really had to do with the stability of society as a whole. The care and respect to its elders. Children were called to honor their parents. And in Israel, one of the ways you honored your parents was to take care of them in their old age. Look at verse 16 now. So we're to the outside points of the chiasm. Let's look at the inside, right? The B. Verse 16 says this, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found a possession of him, shall be put to death. Now, I talked about this last week, stealing a man, right, to sell him into slavery, that's what's implied here, was a horrendous crime, scripturally. So much so that, that it's the death penalty if you're caught doing it. In fact, just listen to Deuteronomy 20, 24, verse 7. It says this, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. You shall purge the evil from your midst. In other words, the, the slave trader, that's the evil. You should purge him from the midst of Israel. What, what, what's that mean? Kill him. Death penalty. In other words, anyone caught forcing someone into slavery, the, the penalty was death. Even in the New Testament, I think it's important for us, especially Americans, to understand this. Even in the New Testament, enslaving someone, meaning stealing them to sell them into slavery, even in the New Testament, this was a major evil. 1 Timothy 1.10 makes it very clear. 
want you to just think about our passage this morning. Again, we're pulling principles out here. God, through Moses to Israel, is grouping together the worst types of sins. Forced slavery, he groups with murder and the attempted killing of one's parents. According to this passage, the worst types of sin within society, these are them. All deserving the death penalty. Which brings us to the second group of laws in this passage this morning. That's the first group, the worst time, the time of crimes that deserve the death, death penalty. The second group of laws that we see in this passage in Exodus 21 are less horrendous crimes, yet still very serious. Again, less horrendous crimes, yet still very serious. They're crimes related to personal injury. In this passage, we see another pattern. Again, these patterns are important, and, and you'll see more in this part why. Right, they're important. Again, a Hebrew would just see this and automatically group things together. We have to point it out because we don't write this way. We write, we write differently. Right? And there's patterns we use in our writing in modern-day Western civilization that, that are just there, and we know them. But if a different culture were to read them, you would have to point them out, right? Same here. The pattern is Hebrew parallelism, and it goes like this. Very simply, A, B, A, B. Let me walk through it one more time. A, crime against neighbor. B, crime against a slave. A, crime against neighbor. B, crime against slave. Right? There's a rhythm here, back and forth. So let me just, again, walk through it. First law, crime against a neighbor. Verse 18 says this, When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or his fist, right, two men are quarreling, that Hebrew word quarreling, I looked it up, it doesn't necessarily mean fist fighting. In fact, it's often translated just arguing verbally. So you can picture what's going on here, two men arguing verbally, and one of them strikes the other with a stone. He er, uh, um, uh, escalates, that's the word, escalates the conflict by striking the other with a stone or his fist. Now, we know what happens if this, this man dies when he does. He picks up a stone, hits him in the head, and that man dies. What happens? It's murder, right? Death penalty for that. Verse 12 makes it clear. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Well, what happens if he doesn't die? This is what this is explained. Again, verse 18 says, When a man quarrels and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed... Then if a man rises again and walks outdoor with his staff, he who struck him shall be cleared. In other words, no death penalty. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time, meaning there's no death penalty, but you need to pay for the loss of his time. He was off work for so long, you need to pay for that. And shall have him thoroughly healed, meaning in modern-day equivalent, pay for his medical bills, right? Whatever it costs to get him back on his feet and going again, you need to pay for those things. In other words, he is to pay for the costs associated with the damages that occurred by hitting him with a stone or his fist. Now, the second crime, again, is a crime against slave. We have A, B, crime against neighbor, crime against slave. Remember the first crime because they're related. And this is what we don't see when we read through this passage. Look at verse 20. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. Now, it's clear in this context, no one argues this. Otherwise, he shall be avenged clearly means the death penalty. He killed another human being with a rod, with a fist, whatever, death penalty. 
But, verse 21, if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Now, many, and maybe including yourself, as we read through the passage this morning, or you have read through this passage and you're yearly reading through Scripture, so I'm sure most of you don't go to Exodus 21 to get, you know, inspiration for daily life. Um, But it's important. Uh, Many of you probably struggle with these two verses, 20 and 21, because it seems like, and I talked about this last week, we, we interpret these passages because of our history in the most negative light possible. So we read these passages, and we automatically assume that God is okay with beating a slave as long as you don't kill him. We need to remember two things. First, a principle that we learned last week, and it's this. Just because something in the law is not condemned, but instead regulated, does not mean that God condones it or encourages it. In fact, there is no justification in these two verses for beating a slave whatsoever. There's no positive justification for that. In fact, I know this for sure because remember the Hebrew parallelism. Think about this. Striking a slave in verse 20 is no more okay than striking your neighbor with a stone in verse 18. Verse 18 and 20 are parallel verses. They're related. In other words, just like God doesn't endorse fighting in verse 18, God wasn't endorsing striking a slave in verse 20. But because man is sinful... God is setting up regulations when man simply gets in a fight or simply strikes a slave. What do you do when those happens? Well, he's giving regulations on it. He's telling you what to do. First, if you strike a slave and kill him, death penalty. It's clear. But, verse 21, but if the slave survives a day or two, the assumption here is there, there's no lasting damage, because we'll see what happens if there is lasting damage later on in this passage. The assumption is there's no lasting damage. It just takes him a couple days to recover from whatever has happened. He, the slave owner, in other words, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Now, what's going on here? Okay. I really think God is just saying there's natural consequences for beating your slave. It's stupid. Again, think about the, the Hebrew parallelism here. You got verse 20, verse 18 and verse 20 are parallel verses, right? So are verse 19 and verse 21. Verse 19, if you strike a guy, one of your neighbors, and he lives, you pay for that guy's time off of work and his medical bills. In other words, you pay for the damages. Verse 21 is the same exact consequences for the slave. Right? For the slave, because... When the slave has to take time off of work, who does that cost? The master. Look at verse 21 again. It says this. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. In other words, it was a costly mistake to beat a slave. Because both time off work, that's going to cost you. Man hours that he, he, he can't work now. And the medical bills, because it's clear that a a master was to take care of the slave, as we saw last week, right? It costs the master to do this, and I want to be clear. God is not giving permission to beat slaves. In fact, that will get very clear in verses 26 and 27, but before we get there, we have to follow the parallelism 
and get the full meaning of this passage. So we'll get there in a second, but look at verse 22 because we're going back and forth between neighbor, slave, neighbor, slave. So let's look at what it says. A crime against a neighbor, verse 22, says this. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. Again, two men are fighting, and, and one hits a pregnant woman. I mean, I'm sure we can picture this, a pregnant woman running in there to try to break up the fight. Maybe the wife of one of the guys that is in the fight, if she gets hit, right, and causes her to go into labor early, but there is no harm, I think this is pretty significant. Even if there is absolutely no harm, there's still a fine. The man, the man must pay a fine to the family. Why? I just think a society is to protect pregnant women more than anyone else. And even if there is no harm, there's still a fine. Because you put that woman and that child in danger, therefore a fine. In fact, I said this first service, Sarah is, we're getting close to, to our fourth, and um, she's at a point now where it's getting a little bit harder to move around, and, you know, and I just feel like, and she, we've talked about this, like, you're kind of, like, vulnerable right now. If someone attacked you, there's not much, you know, you could do. The society is supposed to protect that vulnerability at that point. And so even if there's harm, if there's no harm, I mean, if you, even if there's no harm, it's still a fine. But, verse 30, or 23, but if there is harm, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Again, if there is harm to, to, I believe, the mother or the child in here, and I've looked at this a lot, to the mother or the child, then an appropriate punishment should be handed down. The man shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And what's this mean? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. What, what is this talking about? It's a familiar phrase, I think, probably to all of us, especially if you've grown up in the church, you've heard this. Is this giving someone permission to seek vengeance? And a lot of people read this and automatically think, again, if a man damages someone's eye, then the victim gets to go damage his eye. Or, if a man knocks out someone's tooth, then the victim can seek vengeance and knock out his tooth. Now, is that what this is saying? No, it's not. In fact, Jesus makes that clear in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. He says this, You have heard that it was said, eye, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps your, you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. In other words, Jesus is interpreting this passage in Exodus 21, and he's saying, this is not about vengeance. And I'm just going to stick with Jesus' interpretation because he's God. This is the correct interpretation of Exodus 21, verses 23 through 25. It's not te teaching personal vengeance. Again, that word personal is important. 
What the law is doing here is teaching the elders who are in authority how to administrate justice. This is not giving an okay to personal vengeance. This is telling the elders, those in authority, how to administrate justice when a crime happens. It's a poetic saying, actually, right? teaching that the punishment should match the crime, more or less. It's not saying tear out the eye of someone that damaged someone else's eye. It's saying that there should be no more or less punishment for a crime. Most crimes were punished by fines. So what this is saying is that if you damage someone's eye, it's going to be a way greater uh, fine than if you just bruised them. The punishment shouldn't be more. It should match the crime. That's all this is saying. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This brings us to the next set of laws in this passage, a crime against a slave. Again, neighbor, slave, neighbor, slave. It's all related. Verse 26 says this, When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Once again, many people struggle with these two verses. We read it in the most negative light possible, and we think verses 26 and 27 are saying something like, again, you're allowed to beat your slave as long as you don't hurt his eye. You do hurt his eye, he gets set free. You can, you can beat a slave all you want as long as you don't knock out a tooth. That's where you cross the line. You cross that line, the slave can go free. But that's just a simplistic, and I would say even naive, understanding of this passage. Remember the Hebrew parallelism. That's what's going on here. Let me just ask the question, does eye and tooth sound familiar in this passage? <laughs> Strike the eye of a slave... If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, does that sound familiar? Verse 24. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Verse 26 and 27 are parallel to verses 23 through 25, which says this. But if there is harm, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This is the context of verses 26 and 27. The law is saying here, if a master is found abusing his slave at all, then he should be punished appropriately. An eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, and so on. And if there is any lasting harm whatsoever, that slave gets to go free. All debts are paid off. Now I want you to think about this. If you... Again, you need to hear the sermon last week because this won't make a, a ton of sense if you didn't, but, but this would have been extremely costly on the master's part. Extremely costly. I mean, maybe up to six years worth of employment. And just do the math real quick. Just in today's wealth, right? If someone makes 30000 a year, which is not a lot, right? if you make 30000 a year, right? if you multiply that by six years, you know how much money that is? $180,000. $180,000. That's how much worth of man hours we're talking about here. That's a costly mistake. In other words, the law is discouraging anyone from beating their slaves. So risk is too high. <laughs> Any lasting damage from beating a slave, then you, you're out $180,000 worth of man hours of work. In fact, I think the laws found in verses 20 through 27 
are related to each other. Again, Hebrew parallelism. Think about this. They protect two groups of humans. Two groups of humans that are extremely vulnerable. Not just in Israel society, but in any society. The unborn and the slave. So let me just ask a question. How has America done in protecting these two groups of people in its history? Listen, before we get too judgmental of God's law with a simplistic reading of it and starting getting arrogant, just think about this for a second. If America, which let me stop and say this, which I believe is the greatest nation that's ever existed, if America adopted just the laws found in Exodus 21 and principles behind them, from the beginning, there would be neither the horrors of American slavery, because first of all, all slaves would have been treated as humans, set free if there was any abuse whatsoever. But second, and most importantly, all slave traders would have been put to death immediately. Exodus 21, verse 16, would have ended slavery in America before it began. Again, if America adopted just the principles found in in one chapter of Scripture, Exodus 21, from the beginning, there would be neither the horrors of America's slavery nor the genocide of the unborn. The slaughter of well over 60 million babies in the womb. I think Adolf Hitler was bad. Yet many have the audacity, even Christians have the audacity to judge God's law. To say it's archaic or primitive or old-fashioned or outdated. Can you imagine the life saved? Just the principles from this one chapter. The one chapter that gets criticized more than probably any other chapter in the law. Principles from this one chapter. The lives that would save the, the pain and suffering we would have avoided as a nation. Listen, we should be careful on how we think about God's word. Careful not to criticize it. If we find something we don't like in God's word, that's okay because there's things in God's word that, that I don't like at first. Either I'm wrong then, or I'm misunderstanding it. It's one of those two things. Because the problem is not in God's word itself. This brings me to the last set of laws found in this chapter, crimes of neglect. Again, these are pretty straightforward. Let me point out two things before we look through them verse by verse. This whole section deals with animals, which is not surprising, but may seem odd for us, again, modern Americans. But in this time, everyone owned animals. Even people that just planted needed animals to to do the planning. Uh, everyone just about own animals, and animals are dangerous. It can be. I think the equivalent of these laws would be like owning a car. Everyone owns a car, and they can be dangerous if they're misused. So it would be like car laws, automobile laws in this passage, if that just helps you as we go through this. The second thing I want to point out, and, and this is probably more important, again, is the pattern. There's another chiasm here. This chiasm is a little bit more complicated, so I won't get into all the details, but the important thing is I just want you to see the back and forth of this chiasm. Back and forth, back and forth, right? It goes like this. Not liable to death, 
liable to death. Not liable to death, liable to death. And finally, not liable to death. Again, back and forth. All right, so let me just walk through it again. You'll see it first, not liable to death. Verse 28 says this, When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. He's not liable to death. This ox has shown no aggression before. It was just a, a fluke, tragic accident. The animal should be killed leads to the second part of this chiasm, liable to death. Verse 29, but if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, the owner, in other words, hasn't taken the appropriate steps to keep people safe. This, this, this animal has been accustomed to, to be dangerous and he doesn't keep it in the way he should. Right? This is extreme negligence. And it, the the ox, this animal, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. In other words, he's liable for this death. He's he's liable to the point of death. And this goes back. Again, remember, liable to death, not liable to death. Liable to death, not liable to death. Well, liable to death, the next one is not liable to death. Verse 30. If a ransom is opposed on him, now, this is confusing for us because it just said that he is to be killed. But, but this makes sense, again, in this back and forth, because sometimes the cases aren't straightforward. I mean, just think about this. It's not super clear that he was extremely negligent. There was negligence here, but maybe he thought he locked the pin and he didn't. You're saying, is that, is that so bad that he, it's the death penalty? Well, what this is saying is that situations really just get complicated. And verse 30 gave the elders who are judging this situation, some, some room to use wisdom to say, you were negligent, but it's not clear that with such bad negligence, you should be put to death. And death penalty is a, is a weighty thing. It just gave room for the elders to make a judgment here. Right, again, verse 30. If a ransom is opposed on him, then he shall give the redemption of his life, whether, uh, whatever is opposed on him. I want you to hear the words here because this is very serious. And this is not just a fine. Look what they call this. It's called the redemption of his life. Whatever is opposed on him financially to the, the family that has lost a loved one because of his negligence. So again, we have not liable to death. That leads to liable to death. Verse 31. If it gores a man's son or daughter... He shall be dealt with according to the same rule. And finally, not liable to death. Verse 32. If the ox scores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Now, 30 shekels, I think a lot of us know that that's the average cost of a slave. It was a weighty cost. And that was the least that was to be given if an animal would kill a slave. Now, the pattern here is extremely important. It gives us insight exactly what's going on. And again, a Hebrew would see this pattern automatically connect things that we don't do right away. Why is there a different punishment for a slave in verse 32 than for children in verse 31? Well, let me start by pointing out, every time an owner is not liable to death, it's not because the person who was killed isn't valuable. But instead, it's negligence 
Negligence was either found or not found, and that's what determined death or not death for the owner of the ox. I think this explains verse 32. It's an assumption of innocence. Just think about it for a second. Slaves worked with the animals more than anyone else. That was part of their job. Therefore, if anyone was likely to get gored by an animal, it would be a slave. They would even deal with the dangerous ones in trying to pin them or make sure they wouldn't hurt someone else. Meaning, if an animal kills a child, verse 31, in most cases, this points to negligence on the owner's part. A child shouldn't be around a dangerous animal. But if a slave is gored in verse 32, there's a good chance that this was an accident. Why? Well, because slaves were around these animals more than anyone else. And I think we see in this passage, just like today, by the way, in our law, at least it should be this way, there should always be an assumption of innocence unless all the evidence points otherwise, right? Innocent till proven guilty. Again, this pattern, this style of interpretation helps us interpret this passage. And so... These are three types of laws in this passage. Again, we're going through this book of the covenant. It was given to Israel to govern itself. You have capital crimes. You have crimes of personal injury. And you have crimes of neglect. And this is how the, the, the justice was to be administrated in Israel. Next week, we're going to look at crimes against personal property. But before we get there, I just want to end today, because we've looked at all these laws. And I want to answer this question. Right? How does this apply to us? What are, what are some principles that we can pull from our passage and apply them today? And, and there's a lot. In fact, I had to go through all the different principles that I thought were applicable, but Daniel told me my sermons need to be shorter, so I threw out a bunch, and we have three. So, so you can blame him if, uh, if you want more. Or you can thank him if we get out on time, so whichever. <laughs> three principles that are relative for our passage this morning. Okay, the first one is this. We are to honor our parents. Did you guys just not see that so clearly in this passage? The fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. And I did a whole sermon on the fifth commandment, so I don't want to spend a ton of time here, but, but honoring parents is extremely important. It's one of the Ten Commandments. In fact, it's right in the middle of the Ten Commandments, transitioning the Ten Commandments from love of God to love of others, to love of neighbor. Extremely important. Spoken by God's own voice. It's clearly seen in verse 7. Whoever curses, which again, that word's the opposite of honor, takes lightly instead of weighty. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. The family is so important. Parenting is so important. The family is the smallest and most important unit within society. You attack the family, you attack society. You attack the family, you attack culture. You destroy the family, you destroy society and culture. What do you think is happening today? The devil's not dumb. He's going straight for marriage. It's the most important relationship in the family. Therefore, we should hold the role of parenthood as weighty weighty. Both in honoring your own parents, which that's the application here, but also in being a parent. It's weighty. 
leads us to a question. Are you raising your kids to the glory of God? Because you're raising them to the glory of something. Are you raising your kids to the glory of God? In our passage, not honoring parenthood as a whole, I just believe, it's put with the worst crimes. Second principle, I think that is just extremely clear in this passage, is this. Human life is valuable. Man's made in the image of God. Animals aren't. Plants aren't. Therefore, human life is valuable. Extremely valuable. Exodus 21, just, we just clearly see the value of human life from the elderly, the parents, my kids taking care of their parents and in their elderly age to the, to the child in the womb from free men and women, both genders to slaves Exodus 21 is, is, is really the application of the sixth commandment you shall not murder again spoken from God's own voice you shall not murder because human life is valuable and we should take the appropriate steps to protect it. That's what the crimes of neglect was all about. Even if we're not intentionally trying to kill someone, we should do what we can to protect life. Which leads to a third and final principle, a principle that is extremely relevant for today. Third, human life begins within the womb. Look at verse 22. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child, children, come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, clearly implying at least to the child, maybe both the mother and child, if there is harm to the child, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This is just absolutely consistent with both science, by the way, but with what is way more authoritative than science, God's word. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Psalm 22.10, on you was I cast out from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. You know that's a prophecy of Jesus, right? Psalm 22 is a prophecy of Jesus. This is saying Jesus knew God from the womb of his mother. When did Jesus' human life begin? just clear at conception. Read the New Testament. Psalm 139.13 For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And I can just keep going verse after verse after verse. It just makes it extremely clear that life starts within the womb. 
fact, life starts at conception. You know what? It's the responsibility of the church. It's the responsibility of the church, not just me, us. The body, not a building. It's the responsibility of the church to make sure we continue to proclaim that truth. No matter what the cost, and cost is coming. It's inevitable at this point. It's coming. Let me say this before I end because I know that there is a number of you that have had an abortion in this room. Just the statistics, but I want to say there's grace. There's grace. In fact, at this point in my ministry, I have counseled with a number of you about an abortion, either been a part of or have had, and I have seen the burden lifting off your back for a number of you in just realizing that God has forgiven there's grace. But we can't hide from this truth. Our passage this morning makes it very clear that human life is precious, human life is valuable, human life is to be protected, and human life starts within the womb. Let's pray. Dear God, our Lord, our Master, our Father. Lord, help us understand the portions of Scripture, Lord, that are, that are hard for us as finite human beings to understand, Lord. Help us to, to not be blinded with our cultural glasses that we see things through, Lord, but to understand the meaning behind the text, Lord, what you meant with the words that were written in Scripture. I pray this especially with the law because it's so foreign to us and how to interpret it, Lord. I just pray that you would give us wisdom that, that only could come from your spirit living within us, Lord. God, I pray for our culture. I pray for abortion, Lord, that it would be eradicated in this land. God, I pray for the church that it would continue to stand bold and preach truth and proclaim truth no matter what the cost, Lord. That you would give us courage to be your ambassador. Courage to say what we are called to say. God, I pray for that in your son's name. Amen.